episode of Investors and Operators, a live episode. I sit down with Gretchen Perkins, partner and head of business development at Avance Investment Management. Gretchen, it is awesome to be live in action. Indeed. Let's start off with, uh, if you had a spirit animal, what would it be? I know you're trying to surprise me with that question because we didn't plan this out, but I already know that answer. And I'm a golden retriever. Um, I had a golden retriever for 13, 13 years. Um, so I was able to observe uh, Jeannie and her personality. And I think I am um, I'm a very happy person. Golden retrievers are very happy dogs. They're generally very content. They're pleasers. They like to make people happy and they like to have fun. And so that's why I say I'm a golden retriever. There we go. Last <laughs> flash warm-up question. If you had a walkout song, a theme song, or genre, what would that be? It would be something from Beyonce's library for sure. Please go on. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, what song would it be? It would probably be something along the lines of girls we run the world okay did you want to sing i do but i'm not going to <laughs> <laughs> all right and beyonce rhymes with avance there we go all right good I'm glad. was that planned on yours it was not okay okay got it um well i know basically nothing about you growing up <laughs> really <laughs> i know i just i know you know the avance context and where you're at before, and I know you've been doing BD for you know 20 years, and just, uh, but I don't know anything before that. Okay. So let's rewind. I just would love to know what is the Gretchen Perkins story. Gretchen Perkins, the early years is really what you're asking <laughs> Chapter for. One. Chapter one. I was born in Detroit, Michigan. So I am a native Detroiter. My dad was a minister at the Episcopal Church in downtown Detroit. I was born there um, when ministers in the clergy, uh, Episcopalian, they kind of move new ministers around, kind of like the military. And so when I was about four, um, they moved my dad to a little farm town in the middle of Michigan, as we do in the state of Michigan, um, right in the middle. <laughs> this, is the mitten. This, this is the mitten. This is the mitten. This is, I was born down here and I grew up here in a little town called St. John's, Michigan. So I am, yes, a preacher's kid and um, one of three and had a very idyllic Norman Rockwell-esque growing up. You know, lots of kids in the neighborhood, kickball every summer night, kick the can, you know, hopscotch. It was really very, it was a pretty awesome upbringing. Um, after I graduated, I played in the marching band. It was big, uh, defined me as a high school student being in the marching band. And I also played French horn. French horn. I also played in the pit orchestra, so I was a band nerd and loved every minute of it. What and, instrument do you think I played in eighth grade? Eighth grade. When there were no other instruments available, but I still wanted to be in the band. Tuba. Flute. <laughs> <laughs> like all, all right. All 
the other instruments were taken. I love it. You I were. Came, I came home and my mom's like, "This is gonna last about a week." <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, mean, I just I wanted you know they were girls. Yeah, there. you wanted. I to didn't be... really think about the branding of the flute in eighth grade. Yeah. It, yeah, it didn't work. It literally lasted maybe four weeks. Oh well, okay. So yeah, mine was four long great years, and um, and I also played basketball. No surprise. Um, and uh, so, so great, great upbringing. Um, I went to, I graduated from the University of Michigan because my dad was a Wolverine and had gone to University of Michigan and did a great job of brainwashing me that that's the only place I wanted to go. So, so graduated from the business school at University of Michigan and um, first job out of school was at um, National Bank of Chicago in Chicago when they used to have credit training programs. So that's really where I got my credit training. Well, let's rewind a little bit because we skipped over the first 18 years pretty quick. Okay. <laughs> um, I, mean, like, I don't know how far you wanted to go. Uh, with, you know, with your dad and, um, you know, growing up in that type of environment, like what, what did you learn from being exposed to that type of environment where your dad was in the ministry that is yeah. like a family identity? Like how, how did that really shape, um, your, your upbringing and maybe for the rest of your life? Yeah, that's, a, that's actually a really good question. My dad was a very progressive minister back in the 60s and 70s, very progressive, inclusive of everyone. We used to have, um, you know, folks who were very down on their luck and my dad would let them sleep in the church, in the, you know, in the sacristy, you know, which didn't go over well with many of the church elders, but he said, you know, Jesus was, you know, loved all and we're supposed to help all and we're helping these people who need some help. So, you know, we had a, a, um, a lot of different people showing it up at our house for dinner, people who were down on their luck. And it really taught me to care, to care and try to be very thankful for what you have what we have and that we're all really very fortunate and the world needs to care about each other. And that really is the main takeaway I have from remembering my life as growing up as, you know, as a minister's daughter um, and follow the rules. You know, um, I was not the stereotype of a preacher kid. I was I was a rule follower and make sure you don't embarrass the family. Don't embarrass the family brand because you're a preacher's kid and everybody's going to be judging you more, you know, more harshly than other kids. So, so I felt it. Is there a particular saying or something that like a family motto or whatever that your dad would kind of just say every night, maybe after prayer or something like that? <sighs> no, not really. Other than my dad was very, very free with the, I love you. I love you kids. I love you neighbor kids. I love, you know, he was, he was a big kid. When we played kickball, my dad could play with because you know, he didn't have a job where he went to the office. You know, he's yeah. right next door at the church all day, every day. And so he could, he could run out and join us. So he was, uh, he was a great dad. My mom is alive still, and uh, she was born in the wrong generation. She is an entrepreneur. Um, she was a stay-at-home mom with all sorts of side gigs back before side gigs were a thing. And um, you know, she, she taught me the, you know, the adaptability and, um, and, um, you know, work hard. Um, I did a lot of babysitting as, as a middle schooler and, and high schooler to, uh, to earn money and just, you know, um, both great. I was very fortunate to grow up with fabulous parents. What would be kind of, if you had to 
pass along a piece of advice for Ching and I as parents, what would that be? So one of the things that I did as a mom that was my kids to this day still enjoy is as my kids were growing up and they were learning to talk or they would you know say funny things, I kept what I called the quote board. Piece of paper taped inside a kitchen cupboard because you're in the kitchen all the time when you have little kids. And when the kids would say something funny, I'd write it down and I'd write a date and I'd write the context. And then you just keep taping you know, sheets of paper, because it's always very convenient. That's my method. You know, I didn't need a fancy scrapbook or calligraphy pens, just, you know, whatever you had. And then it would get too fat over the years. And then um, I put it in a folder and I'd start again. That is brilliant. I have done this throughout their lives, less so nowadays, right? But we'll say something like, whoa, that's quote board worthy. That's really good. And the kids get a huge kick out of it when they're 10 and they read what they said when they were two or three. And then, you know, the kids' friends, there's always a pack of kids at my house. I wanted to be the house where all the kids' friends wanted to hang out. And uh, so then the kids, the neighbor kids and the friends from school, they'd be trying to get on the quote board. Like people were like, did that make the quote board, Mrs. Perkins? Like, no, try it later. You know, and so we have their friends sprinkled throughout. And one Christmas, when my kids were in college, they while they were home, they grabbed all those papers from the file and they put them in, you know, like scrapbooks for me. And so I that have is absolutely awesome. My most treasured keepsake. It's fun while you're doing it, and it's well, really like fun years later. Oh well, then it's even funnier. <laughs> then it's I mean, it's obviously you know kids you get, don't love me. I hate you. You hate me. I, <laughs> Well, there's that. There's a lot of that. There's the quote board where mom says, boy, that's pretty ungrateful again. <laughs> um, so uh, indeed, indeed. But uh, it's uh, that has just been something that really gave me a lot of joy. My kids thought it was hilarious and others as well. There so we go. easy to I, do. Yeah, no, parent trip. Parent tip 101. I love it. All right. Well, that's a good transition into uh, your first job. Uh, My first job. First job was at First National Bank of Chicago in the city of Chicago. Big deal from a girl from here. Um, had done Mitten. When I went to college in Ann Arbor, I thought that was the big city. Then I moved to Chicago and I loved it. I loved the urban environment. I lived right downtown. Um, Lincoln Park. Uh, you know, just the classic post college experience and was there for about three years. And then at that time, uh, relocated back to Michigan to get married and start having kids and, um, and lived there ever since. So my move, my big move to Avance is a giant move. I've spent my entire life cycle for three years. Now, right? I'm in far warmer weather. Yeah. Hate the snow. Sorry, Michigan. <laughs> Love you. <laughs> Love, Love you, you in the summer. <laughs> <laughs> so this has been a fresh start all around for me. It's been great. So after after the first job, what was the, just kind of keep on walking through it. Yeah, the next job when I relocated back to Michigan, I joined Barclays Business Credit and I was a collateral auditor. So I had to go out to for an asset-based lender. We were an asset-based yep. lender. Um, had to go into the plants and do test counts, inventory test counts, reconcile receivables from the ledgers there with the bank statements. So that was my first job. I was a collateral, collateral auditor. And then uh, got promoted 
over time to business development. And then was out, then I was the one out looking for the loan prospects and other younger people. was at people. the bank that wasn't at, then you went on to GE? And then I went to GE Capital after that, yes. So Barclays, uh, I was at Barclays for seven years, I think about seven years. Then I joined GE Capital, um, which, was, which was great, got me more into cash flow lending, cash flow and asset-based lending in the group that I was with. And then after three years, um, I went back to Barclays which um, which by that time was called Fleet Capital. They had been acquired. Okay. So I was there for another three years. And then frankly, I had my kids were young. They were three and five or four and six. And I couldn't do the travel that was required when the private equity firm would say, we want you to come to the management meeting with us. And you know, as a lender, you only get a day or two notice. And I just, I couldn't, I couldn't make that work. And so, um, so I actually, I, I call it, I mommy tracked it for about, about two years, two, three, no, for longer than that, maybe yeah, a total. Yeah, um, no, I had to leave fleet. I couldn't, I couldn't do that travel. And they, oh, okay, okay. they told it that was the reason I left. And so then I joined an auto industry consulting firm and did business development. I had been lending to all sorts of automotive suppliers yeah. um, because I was based in Detroit. Um, and so I knew that market very well. And now I was just do, doing sales basically for, an, for a, a consulting product to the automotive industry. So that gave me the flexibility that I needed. And I worked, you know, kind of from nine to three every day for a few years. It's interesting how like the idea of the mommy track has now can now change absolutely because you can say yeah i can work from home absolutely and travel i don't yes. really need to travel right as much i can do this manual yeah. presentation from living room this was the day we didn't have we didn't have even blackberries yet yeah. right we we didn't even we certainly didn't have laptops you know you had a desktop at work but, um, but, you know, it was the dial-up. I remember getting internet installed <laughs> at my office. You know, it, this was a long time ago. So yeah, it was very, you had to, I had to leave kind of the normal full-time workforce. And I did that for a few years and then Longpoint Capital, um, a private equity firm with headquarters in Detroit and New York, um, reached out to me and said, we're big enough now, um, we're on our second fund and we're looking for someone to do business development um, full-time. Full-time being, being that person's only yeah. function. And so I, I told them, you know, I said, listen, I, you know, I, I need to go home at three o'clock every day. And they were like, fine, we, you know, we think that's completely fine with when, you. When was this? <sighs> that would have been 2002. I joined, I joined um, Long Point Capital in 2002, and that's where I learned how to do private equity um, business development. And I because you started on the lending. Side. I was on the lending side, right? So I got all my finance and running models, you know, reps in while I was a lender, but not as an equity person. So I learned how to do, you know, models. Even though I was business development, you still have to know how to run a model and know what factors impact it. So learned that at Long Point Capital. Uh, many thanks to Jerry Boylan, my mentor um, and boss from, uh, from Long Point. He was an excellent 
business development person. He had been doing it at Masco Corporation in a corporate development capacity before he left to start his own uh, private equity fund with two what, other what partners. Him, what made him excellent at the BD profession? Um, genuinely enjoys other people, gregarious, outgoing, um, very, you know, I would I would call on him when I was a lender, and this is how we knew each other. I would call on him as a lender at Masco Corporation. I'm an asset-based lender, right? Masco's a publicly traded corporation, but I figured this guy in corporate development, he's doing deals all the time. Masco's looking at deals and buying companies all the time. You know, he doesn't he doesn't need my debt capital, but he knows people that might. He travels in the circles that need my my loan product. And so I would call him, you know, I'm completely unimportant and irrelevant to him. And he we both know it. But I would call him and like once a year and six months later on his drive up north for the weekend, um, he would he would call me back. Or his secretary this is back when we you know people had Individuals had individual secretaries. His secretary would call and say, I have Jerry Boylan on the phone for you. I'd be great. So he was that type of person. He would he returned every call. He took any conversation. He tried to be as helpful to everyone who reached out. And he would call me back and not, with zero return for him, right? I mean, he doesn't need my debt. Um, but that's how we struck up our relationship. And then when Jerry left, because he wanted to start a private equity firm in 2000, well, he left in the late 90s, but they didn't hire a BD person until 2002. Um, he, it was his idea to reach out to me. He said, I remember how diligently you called on me when there was no way on God's green earth that I was going to use your debt, but I appreciated your diligence and the way you went about it. And we need a person like that right now to do private equity, to do, to source deals for us, source equity deals. That's how I got into private equity. I'm eternally grateful to you, Jerry. Um, well, you're, you're still talking about it 20 years. Yeah. Later. Yeah. The, the impact of that type of relationship building and uh, and how it's influenced your career. So what are the, just like the history of the, the BD profession? I mean, what is chapter one of business development, maybe within the private equity context? Yeah, I, I, you should ask Jay Jester when he and David Melizia, when they started in this function, because that's what they, they were the early, and Bob Landis. Um, he's now, he has his own private equity fund, um, but he was at Florida Capital Partners, um, for a long time, and Glenn Oaken asked the, ask them when they started. I think it was the late '90s, because when I started, and this is this is another great lesson on who can be your mentors, right? In in your career, Jerry Boylan for sure. Another person younger than me, also at Long Point Capital at the time, Scott Hauncher. He said, um, and this was when the Capital Connections were just starting. They weren't even called that, but Chicago ACG. I believe had the first kind of private equity standing behind a table and investment bankers, you know, coming by and meeting. In advance of going to that, Scott Hauncher told me, talk to, oh, and Bob Landis. Yes, Bob Landis when he started in this. He's also one of the early crew, early, early crew. He said, find Bob Landis, Jay Jester, and Dave Melizia and do what they do. He's like, that's what we want you to do. 
And, and I did. I, I watched those guys. I benchmarked them. I asked them for input. They're all so generous with their time. And, you know, we were all competitors, you know. I mean, theoretically, over time, I realized the right company, the right private equity firms win the deal for the right reasons. It doesn't matter kind of how many people are competing, right? So you got to find the deal that's the right one for you, where you have an angle and an edge and all the rest don't matter. Right. So, so just because it says consumer, consumer, right. consumer, same size equity check, same size, there's more to it. There's a lot so more to that's it. That's just the surface. Things that we like that maybe the client doesn't like about us or does like. It's so, it's so variable. But at the time, these guys were so helpful to me. And so I, I definitely was in on the early surge, but I did have a few people that I could learn from. Business development people were all about making connections and helping. And, you know, the folks that were already doing it that I mentioned, they showed me the power of referring things. And, you know, not everything's going to be right for everybody, to your point on three firms looking at the same consumer deal. That's how it started. And I really liked it. I like going into a room where I don't know anybody and seeing who new and interesting I can talk to and find out what they do and find out if I can help them. Another uh, boss of mine along the way was Mike Beauregard at Huron Capital. And he has a saying that he instills in everybody. And it's really good for business development people. Provide value first. When you meet somebody new, Provide value to them before you ask them for anything or expect them to send you a deal or send you anything. Provide value first. And so that's, an, that's another, you know, things you learn and pick up from other people along the way. Use them. I, Did it take I do. time to <laughs> internalize that or as part of your DNA? And I, and I ask that because so much of, I think, especially earlier on a career, you're very trained. We can be transactional. Right. It's like, more ask more. for the business. Ask. Everyone tells you that, yeah. right? I, I think that's really old school. Um, and as a young person, you're, you're taught that. Did you ask for the business? Did you ask for the business? Well, no, I haven't given them anything yet. You know, what should be your response? Um, it didn't take long for me. And anyone who has my personality, it, it, it really is like, you're probably doing that anyways. Um, but it just helps you remember to do it every single time and, you know, and return the phone calls and be, be happy to get on the phone with young people or new people entering our industry and helping them navigate their way and connecting them with people that, you know, might also be helpful to them. What are some of the common mistakes that you find that young professionals in this industry are making? Not asking questions and not asking for help. Feeling like, they're in competition with the other associates, don't want to ask a question because they're afraid someone higher up will shut them down or, oh, goodness, goodness, figure out you don't know everything. You know, crowdsourcing answers is great. Do it. Use your network. Use your colleagues. Use the other people in your firm. Ask questions. I mean, it really needs to that, that, to me, I feel, as a young person, you're just really trying to prove yourself and carve out your niche in your firm. And I think the biggest mistake is not asking questions. We're trying to create a culture here. Everyone asks questions all the time. We're incredibly transparent here at Avance. We think it's critical to our firm's development. And um, we think that's the, way, that's the right way to do it. Have you always been curious? Yeah. Yeah, I, I was a early as a kid. I was a voracious reader. 
I read a lot. I'm embarrassed to say I do not read enough nowadays. Um, Audible? Too much. Um, I don't enjoy Audible. <clears throat> Everyone says that. When I make the drive between Tampa and Miami, yeah. I could be doing Audible. I just, I don't enjoy getting my content that way. Um, I like favorite? to read a book. Yeah. What's your favorite book or kind of a group of books that you just maybe always go back to where you found really influential for? I need to think about this. I'm trying to think of the last one that I couldn't put down. The Avance PPM? <laughs> the Avance PPM. It's a page turner. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I don't have an answer for you. I'm gonna have to get that. I really don't. I really don't. I'm trying to think. I like. I can't. Sorry. We need the Amazon PPM. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, let's, so let's kind of go into. You know, I think you ended off at Long Point, mm -hmm. and just kind of go from there with the evolution of career. My time at in 2000. Um, so our our mandate and our what we invested in at. Um, Long Point was all building products businesses. Uh, because of our ties and our knowledge to Masco, which had a lot of building products, we, we did have, we had better knowledge than others of that space. However, um, we did not see the downturn coming, the housing bubble crisis. Um, and at that time, you know, everyone was already seeing it in, in our portfolios if you had any if anybody had any building products businesses. We saw it earlier because we had more. And um, and I remember saying, I remember going into Jerry's office and saying, Jerry, I think I have to find a new job. And he said, why? Because he's, what are you talking about? And we at the time were at the end of our second fund. We were going to need to have some exits, which we had planned, right, for 2009 or whatever, we were going to need some exits. And I actually went, this was before the, the real bust in, in the fall of 08. So I went in kind of the end of 2007, early 2008. I said, Jerry, I think I need to find a new job. I said, you know, with the housing downturn, you know, this downturn, this could last a year. <laughs> this could last a whole year. You know, we're out of money. And we're going to have to wait, uh, you know, a year for the market to come back and then a year for our, you know, companies to post positive numbers again and then sell. I said, I don't have anything to do. We don't have any money. You know, we're, we're fully invested. And he said, huh, <laughs> I never thought of it like that. <laughs> And, um, you know, he, of course, said, you know, we're, you know, we're not going to let you go because of this situation. I just knew what the next couple of years were going to look like. And as a BD person, that's no fun. And, um, and at the exact same time, Huron Capital, Brian Demkowitz from Huron Capital reached out to me and said basically the same thing. And this is very common in the private equity world. We've just raised our third fund. We need somebody dedicated full-time to business development. We see what you're doing here at Long Point. Would you join us? And it was a very natural, it was a very natural time. And um, Jerry completely understood. I mean, we're friends today. We're on a nonprofit together today. Um, what nonprofit? Uh, the Detroit Police Athletic League. 
Um, and he invited me to be on the, it's called Girls Changing the Game. And it, uh, the Police Athletic League is multiple different sports. The idea is to get inner city kids yeah. um, into organized sports without it having to cost them. Because in many schools, you know, many parents realize you got to pay. It's pay to play. You pay for your uniform, you pay to be on the baseball team, you pay to be on the cheer team, whatever. Um, and so this is a nonprofit dedicated to making opportunities available. And, you know, it's two thirds boys that participate now. And um, the girls changing the game committee, it's our mandate to increase the number of girls playing sports. Playing sports is hugely crucial to success in business. There's lots of, there's, well, you learn about competition you learn about teamwork. You learn that every person on a team has a role and not everybody on that team is a great, like let's say we're talking, you know, volleyball. Um, not everybody can smash the ball. But you know, those us tall girls that maybe can, can slam the ball, we can't get down fast like someone smaller, quicker, you know, the libero in the back row who's yeah. jumping all over. But you need both those people on your team and one is really good at smashing and one is really terrible at it. And one is really good at digging the ball out and one is really terrible at that. And that's okay. Do you think that so. you've been a, a more team sport player most of your life? Yeah. I never did any individual sports. I played basketball and I played softball. And that's what was kind of available when... It's interesting because I did golf for so long. Okay. Um, and, and now, you know, into endurance sports, it's very... Solo. solo, very solitary. But you yeah, learn the same my things. Boss, my old boss is right. I guess I am a lone wolf. <laughs> <laughs> but you learn during my performance review for six years in a row. There was yes. this common thing like you're a little bit too much of a lone wolf. Like you need to work on that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> gravitate to the things that oh, we're man. sort of like, right? Well, um, it's, um, it's interesting just how um, you know sports. It. it uh, we don't have it in our company, but do you, when you're looking at people to join Avance, do you factor in sports or um, types of competitive, or what are you looking for when you're trying to hire? Like, what are the foundational attributes aside from the, the hard skills? The, qual the, qual the, the quantitative yeah. or the functional skills. Uh, we're looking for well-rounded people. We're looking for well-rounded people with a diversity of experience. We know the diversity based on gender, ethnicity, um, member of the LGBTQ community, economic disadvantage. We know that all of these different experiences and, and groups bring different things of value. And it is definitely, you know, the sum is the, the whole, some of the parts is greater than the parts individually. Um, there's lots of studies that prove that. We want people also with diverse experiences. So maybe one individual is an avid, you know, art collector and one does, you know, ultra marathons. Maybe one does, you know, jujitsu and maybe one is a voracious reader or lover of food and wine. Uh, no, I just remembered that on somebody's resume that I looked at. Really? Yeah. All right. Yeah. Like, oh, I did cool. It for like nine years. Oh, you did? Six days a week. That it, Whoa. 29 gems worldwide, like that was, that it was, was your my thing. meditation. It was, it was crazy, like no matter what I was going through in life, like how that, like went through my father's passing away and, and other, you know, things in life. And 
no matter what, I will go. Mm-hmm. And it was just meditation. You know, yeah. you, you tend not to think about other things when someone's trying to choke you out. <laughs> yeah, well, there's that. <laughs> there's that. <laughs> so, you know, I, I would not say having involvement in sports is a prerequisite to, you know, yeah. to, to someone we would want to hire. But there are lots of studies that show if you look at the top women in publicly traded companies, whether they're CEOs or on the boards, yeah. there is a, a very high correlation between those women having played uh, sports as a girl. So moms, get your girls involved in sports in some capacity. <laughs> there we go. Um, <laughs> well, and, and you, you, this brings up another good topic, which is I, I think the statistic is something like 4% of corporate boards have minority women or women. I forget what the exact, it might be it's I believe- probably higher for women. I think for it's like four or five percent have minority women on the corporate boards, but I think it brings up a larger topic, which is like how if you have the argument that it is good, mm-hmm. um, how do you actually change? You you try harder. You try harder. You can find quality folks, um, men and women of different ethnicities. You have to try harder. And we spend a lot of time on that. We, we, um, we spend a lot of time on trying to find diverse candidates because we think it will yield higher returns. So um, diversity also includes you know, Caucasian men and women. It, it diverse, everything is what we're looking for to bring all of these experience together for the betterment of our, of our fund performance. Um, we, Try harder is to is I'm not trying to be glib. You you do have to try harder. You have to network in different circles. You have to provide value to those different circles so they'll even bother or care about maybe referring you um, a minority woman board member or CEO candidate or VP of sales or whatever you know whatever it is. Um, it, it requires harder work on networking. We spend a lot of time here interviewing, talking with people who can help provide us leads, um, funding different causes that, you know, that can help bubble up more and more of those candidates and direct them to us. So it's just, it's a lot of time spent on that. We have a wonderful advantage of being a first-time fund is that we don't have a giant portfolio to manage right now. We can spend the time on these foundational things that are core to our mandate, our mission, and how we want to build this firm.